This week on the Backtable Podcast. I see us really as, as the knights. We can move left, we can move right, we can move in all these different ways. We can ablate, we can cryoblate, we can microwave. We can even, in some cases, I don't really want to get into it because it's more experimental, but we can even go in there and embolize. I'd like to welcome everyone to Backtable's uh, podcast. Today we're going to be talking about ablations, uh, primarily lung ablations. And today I'm pleased to introduce uh, two people that are going to be joining me, Chris Beck and Stephen Hunt. I'll begin by uh, talking about myself, which is fun to do. Uh, I am uh, Mike Barraza. I am a newly minted interventional radiologist out of the University of Pennsylvania, where I'm fortunate to have uh, Stephen Hunt as one of my mentors. Uh, I'm also fortunate to have gained the award of best fellow in the history of uh, University of Pennsylvania. If that's correct, Stephen? <laughs> that, that sounds that's absolutely right, not true. <laughs> uh, Stephen, uh, I'd like for you to uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, in particular, I'd like for you to talk also about your uh, recent award from uh, WCIO. Sure. So I, I did my uh, my training, my MD and my PhD out at Stanford University, um, and uh, in in molecular uh, physiology. But when I came to University of Pennsylvania. Uh, to do additional training in radiology and, and interventional radiology, and I ended up sticking around to do, you know, fellowship here, um, and I was uh, the chief resident and chief fellow here at Penn, and then I kind of stayed on the faculty. And I set up a lab with a couple of the other interventional radiologists, uh, Terrence Gate and, and uh, Greg Nadolsky, called the Penn Image Guided Interventions Lab, Piggy Lab. And so many of the uh, uh, folks within the Society of Interventional Radiology know us because we, we have a pretty robust research presence at the different meetings and um and uh and then you know we basically as 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 I went forward in my career here in in particularly with an interest in interventional oncology specifically um you know I found that there was a lot of folks in the uh in the liver space and in the kidney space of doing liver cancer and and uh and kidney cancer and there wasn't as many people dealing with lung cancer uh, specifically. And um, so just to briefly go to the WCIO, you had asked about the WCIO grant. Um, what we're doing with that is uh, is actually looking at the immune response to embolization uh, in one of our animal models, a rat model of liver cancer. But my other passion and my kind of clinical passion really is, revolves around lung cancer, which is why I'm, I'm so... Uh, you know, so excited to talk to you guys today about, you know, the various techniques and, and why I do the way I do, the way I practice with lung cancer. But just to give you guys a, an idea, lung cancer is by far the leading cause of cancer-related death in the United States. It claims more than 155,000 American lives a year. And if you add up all the, you know, next cancers combined of, by death, which is colorectal, breast, and prostate, you get to 120,000, so you get to not even not even the amount of people who die of lung uh, and bronchial wow. cancer a year. So that that tells you that if you're not in lung, basically you're you're not in cancer really in the big in the big way. <laughs> um, you know, even if you separate out lung into the various subtypes of lung, every subtype, even the, what we would call the rare subtypes like small cell, um, there are more deaths from that than there are from liver cancer. So. That just tells you how many really the clinical need that's there for lung cancer, and there just are not a lot of interventional radiologists, unfortunately, who are willing to uh, to be in that space. You know, lung cancer accounts for more than a quarter of all cancer diagnoses, uh, 225,000 uh, diagnoses of lung cancer in this country a year, and I already told you more than 155,000 deaths a year. So you're looking at close to a quarter of a million people a year getting diagnosed with lung cancer in this country. 
and possibly, you know, a subset of them, of course, uh, who are who are going to be um, receptive to getting uh, care from us. Actually, I wanted to, to jump in, like, uh, and, and echo Stephen, and, and like as an interventional radiologist, I have to admit, you know, with the exception of lung biopsies, I don't play any role in in, in the management of, of uh, lung cancer, specifically non-small cell. Um, but and, and so it's not the it's not the need that that I doubt that that exists there. But you know, you know, part of like my roadblock is um, a practice where, uh, you know, if I had to say that, like, my clinical practice developed in a route where I'm just more comfortable with like, intravascular liver-directed therapies. I mean, that was, like, sure. such a robust part of, of my training. And I think that's echoed throughout, you know, a lot of uh, different training programs. You know, it's not that, like, I don't think there's, like, a need or a role for IR docs to, to play in um, lung cancer treatment. But it's kind of an unfamiliarity in that space. And so, like, this is one of the reasons, like, I think me and uh, some of the other guys were interested in doing the lung ablation uh, podcast. And that not only with, like, uh, uh, lung ablation techniques, but just tel- uh, patient selection and uh, finding, like, like, I mean, I think we're all comfortable with doing the biopsies of the lung. And, but, right. you know, I think there are some nuances to doing the, the actual ablation that, like, I think we're all interested in hearing about. Yeah, it, it's certainly a challenge um, because I mean, even myself haven't had Stephen train me. Uh, you know, I did I did several of these with him, but I'm, I'm I'm trying to pick this up on my own, try to start something on my own, and and so you know, I think for everybody, Stephen, I think it'd be really helpful to to hear how you got started doing lung ablations. Sure. So, I guess like you guys, you know, when I came when I came here to Penn and I trained, you know, I I got a, a chance, you know. Uh, is as lauded as Michael's making it for for me working with him. Uh, you know, really the, the the father of interventional oncology is right here at Penn, which is Michael Solon. And so Michael, you know, Michael does not have a real lung lung uh, lung cancer practice. He does do lung ablations for metastatic cancer. So I had done a couple with him as a fellow, but for the most part, uh, you know, nobody was going to lung tumor board, and nobody was trying to pick up lung cancer patients or even to make a clinical practice out of metastatic lung lung disease. And I think part of it is is that, you know, there is some unfamiliarity there and so the comfort level of dealing with that. As well as uh, as well as that there's simply enough, you know, low hanging fruit with the other forms of cancer in and with the practice as it develops that they didn't see the need to expand clinically there. Or perhaps they just simply weren't uh you know, weren't interested. You know, I heard everything from, you know, well that seems like kind of a dangerous practice and I don't want to deal with the chest tubes to, um, you know, lung cancer. It's just, you know, it's kind of a self-inflicted disease. And so I kind of heard a lot of different reasons why people were not in the lung space. Um, but I think that the honest truth is a lot of it is unfamiliarity, as you as you brought up. Um, but if you've done a lung biopsy, let me tell you that that is uh, very often, I mean, it depends on what kind of biopsy you're doing, but if you're doing core biopsies, that's Every bit as dangerous, if if not more, than doing the ablation, and that's something that uh, that Dr. Brazen knows. I've I've stressed to him, which is that you go in there and you create pulmonary hemorrhage, and your ability to control that pulmonary hemorrhage in the absence of doing a thermal-based ablation is limited. And so, you know, we've had patients who, with the thoracic, you know, our thoracic radiology colleagues who have died of you know of, of a biopsy, um, and more than one. Um, and that just sometimes happens. That's bad luck. You hit a, you know, you hit a vessel, and it, the person is, you know, coagulopathic for whatever reason, even though you've checked those things, and um, and the person ends up not being able to, to, you know, they end up not being able to get control of the bleeding, and the person and exsanguinates. But, um, but I think that that happens actually less with ablation because of the fact that you actually coagulate the blood vessels in the vicinity. So, um, to kind of 
discuss how I how I go about my practice. First of all, I started going to lung lung tumor board and um, and really most you know the first couple times you know, but all, all the time I'm sitting there most of the time and just listening. You know, most okay. lung tumor boards I I go to, I don't pick up a patient. Okay. Um, however, <clears throat> let me tell you that initially it was just you know lung ablations that I was pursuing, but as the practice developed, I do far more metastatic disease from lung cancer in the liver or in the adrenal uh, adrenal gland or in the bone or in the other places that lung cancer goes because lung cancer goes to various places. Um, so yeah, you actually do so more that, adrenals than anyone else at so, 10. Uh, did a lot of those right. come from tumor board. Right, and a lot of those come from tumor board. A lot of those just come from other, other, other folks who found out that I do adrenal ablations, and so they send them to me, and they come from even non-lung cancer. So I get them from colon cancer patients or from various other things where, for some reason, it seems that the adrenal is somewhat of a uh, chemo-resistant organ, probably to do with the hormonal uh, stimulation of tumors within the adrenal, um, and also to do with its unique kind of blood supply and things like that. So, um, so I started, you know, to get comfortable with doing that. And, you know, you started off, you know, initially I think I was under treating patients because I was afraid about, you know, what if I'm up against the blood vessel and this and that. And as I sure. got to learn and as I talked to other experts in the field, like, um, uh, you know, Damien Dupuy up at Brown and folks like that, right. and they and they gave me their experience in being able to, you know, put a probe and lay it down right on the aorta or right, right down on the IVC <laughs> and do the ablation, once and I once I kind of like even do that, it's pretty amazing. <laughs> right, right. And so once you once you got started to get comfortable with it, and also when you know you you of course prepare for disasters in case they happen. And so um, you know you have your surgical colleagues and call you know who you've you've established a relationship with and are able to back you up should you get into a sticky situation. And also that you're okay. ready to you know you're ready to prep the groin and go in and, and you know and deal with it a vascular emergency if necessary. But um, but I think that there's a lot of trepidation and a lot of fear that comes with just not knowing and just not having the experience of having seen it done and, and having, you know, and having had that experience. Um, so when I think about it, you know, how I approach tumor board, um, and, and y'all can interrupt at any point because I don't, I don't mean to be bogarting the conversation here, but the first pa- person to give me a patient actually was the surgeon. And so... Really? When you think of the the surgeon, you know, it was it was John Kaharchik, who's a, a well-known uh, cardiothoracic surgeon. He's a head of cardiothoracic surgery here at Penn, and he's a surgical oncologist as well. And um, and he had a patient that he had already. It was an 82-year-old man um, who he had already resected one lobe of the man's lung for lung cancer. And the man had another, as is often the case, just like in liver cancer, where what you're dealing with is a cirrhotic liver, and, and HCC is going to pop up in different places. Same thing in these lung cancer. You know, these folks are smokers, and they've got emphysema, and they've got uh, uh, risk factors for developing lung cancer anywhere in their lung. And so even though you can go and you can cut out that one tumor that pops up, chances are at some point <clears throat> that cancer is going to come in a different part of the lung. And we're not talking about a, a, a synchronous tumor. We're talking about a metachronous tumor. You know, just a totally new de novo cancer pops up years later in another lobe of the lung. Well, because these folks, as you can imagine, have reduced pulmonary function already, uh, the thought of going and taking out more pulmonary reserve uh, simply isn't there. Now, in this case, of course, he, he brought up, oh, well, you know, I've already taken out one lobe, and, I, and I'm kind of reticent about taking out another lobe. And, of course, the, uh, as you would expect, what happened at Tumor Board, the, uh, the radiation oncologist stepped up and said, well, of course, we'll radiate that for you. <laughs> right. And then he said, you know what, you know, 
I, uh, when I took out the original lobe, actually the guy had had radiation right before I did the, did the surgery, and he had a pretty bad reaction to it, and, and, uh, and, I, and I don't think he's got the pulmonary reserve to tolerate it, so uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it to the kid. And that's exactly what he said, give it to the kid. Because <laughs> uh, I was sitting down at the end of the row, you know, I was a young guy, and, you know, it's all these old radiation oncologists. And, and was a, you know, he's a senior, he's a senior guy, and, um, and uh, so I was thankful for that first patient. Well, you know, that patient, as is always propitious, you know, that patient did very well. I ablated his uh, I ablated his tumor actually with microwave, and uh, and that man still comes back to see me years later now. Um, no kidding. To check in and bring me. Uh, he actually brings me little sweets. Him and his wife are very sweet, and they always bring me uh, a cannoli. A cannoli, yeah. There you go. And uh, <laughs> and I'm so and good. So and so he brings me these things, and and uh, and just he's just very thankful that it saved him a big surgery. You know, he came in, he had the procedure, he left the same day with the mandate, and he's like, wow. The, to contrast this with what I went through. With my chest surgery, this is just amazing. And he went out there and just told his friends about it, you know. So, so, so Stephen, actually, let me let me ask you this: like, so, so as someone who who's very interested in getting into the lung ablation practice, you, you kind of describe like you know your index patient or your patient zero. Um, yeah. What what would be like your you know describe like two scenarios? Like one, your your typical patient that now like your bread and butter referral um, from like the the referral base you've built up. And then also, like, kind of describe, like, maybe, like, what you would think would be, like, a chip shot, like, your ideal first patient who, like, you think, like, you really stand a great chance at, like, maximizing their clinical outcome to be, sure. to be like, um, kind of, uh, like, your, your tumor board case that you would present later to, sh- to show other docs who may be, you know, who may be more reticent referrals. Sure. Yeah, because I'm getting so, all of the so, opposite of those. I want to hear about this, too. Sure. Right. So, yeah. I, so what, I would, what I would say was <laughs> even, even to talk about the index case, you know, Folks who've had prior bad experience with radiation are reticent about undergoing more radiation, okay? Um, and because of that, you know, of course, so, so let me just set it up. Let me just first set it up and say, when you walk into tumor board, you got to know who all the players are and their perspective. So I actually think okay. of it as a, chess, as a chess game. And, and I know, Michael, you've heard this before, but I, I just lay it out for the, for the folks listening to the podcast. When I, when I look, when I walk in there, the head of the whole chessboard really is the queen, most powerful, and that's the medical oncologist. The queen doles out poison. That's her way of treating everything. She's got chemotherapy, and she's going to poison the cancer, okay? Then, then, uh, then in addition to the queen, you've got the king, and that's the surgical oncologist. Now, they, because of the nature of uh, all of medicine, we know that the surgeons tend to, you know, sort of dominate the conversation in any room. Um, and, and so they have a lot of power just by virtue of, you know, they can actually take that thing out and be done with it, right? And when they cut it out, it's gone. It's in the bucket, and it's gone. And so they've got a lot of weight uh, on the tumor board, and if they say, you know, I think that the interventional oncologist should get it, then that's, that's what's going to happen. Now, the, you know, the, second, the, the third person in that room is actually, um, uh, well, let's just stick with the therapeutic folks, is, is the radiation oncologist, and I think of them as the bishops. You can't see what the hell is they're doing. They work their magic, but somehow it works, right? It's like, you know, they say their little prayers and, and the cancer goes away. You know? So um, on the other hand, it's got, uh, it's got some nasty side effects, as does all religion. So, uh, so I think of, the, you know, I, I think of the, the radiation oncologist as the bishops. And then you've got the rooks, which is the, the interventional pulmonologist. And their job really, uh, they're, they're kind of very limited. They can only move one direction and another direction, right? They're limited to, for the most part, for the most part, biopsying the thing. So they they stick a tube down the guy's 
you know, uh, uh, trachea and, and up in there, and they can biopsy some lesions. They can't get at all of them, which is why some of them do come to transthoracic. But as much as what they can do that we tend to not be able to do is that they can sample the nodes in the mediastinum and the nodal stations, and so they can stage the disease. Now, that's very important in lung cancer because that predicts prognosis and response to therapy, including chemotherapy. So you can't discount I don't want to jump ahead, but I've seen you do that too. Sure. Well, I can, I can biopsy the mediastinum, <laughs> but, but they, will, they, will biopsy, they will biopsy multiple nodal stations, and they have a very standardized way yes. of doing that. And so sure. you've got to understand that from their perspective, if you walk in there and like, well, I can biopsy, and they're like, yeah, but can you stage it? And, and recognize that that's something that we generally can't do. So they can go okay. and, you know, they take level twos and level threes and level fours and level fives, and they kind of go down the nodal chain and they're sampling and they're determining whether there's cancer present in the ipsilateral and contralateral lymph nodes of the various stations. So that's a very important part of the disease. They also, when it comes to therapy, they're able to go in there and, and, and for example, stent open a bronchus, um, and that can be invaluable to a patient, you know, who's, who's, who's experiencing uh, you know, obstructive atelectasis and, and post-obstructive pneumonias and stuff. And so, you know, they are basically, you know, when you walk in there, they're already going to be present in that tumor board, and they're already going to have a well-defined role. And their role tends to not overlap with the other people in the conference. And so because of that, they're already going to be, you know, kind of more of a team member than you are until you, until you become a real one with the, with the tumor board. Okay, now let's talk about, well, what about the thoracic radiologists? I think of them as the whole, they're kind of the pawns in the game. They got one thing. They can get a little bit of tissue. But they tend to be, uh, like any pawn, not very powerful in the sense that they, they tend to shy away from doing anything that might, require, that might require placement of a chest tube. So they tend to not take core biopsies. They mostly just take FNAs or they use a TEMNO, um, so something like a small, they take what's called a core biopsy, but it's wispy pieces of tissue that... In the modern world, what the, what the medical oncologists want in order to do the targeted therapy that they want to do is they want as many big, fat, noodle cores you can give them because they're going to run the genetics on it. They're going to run the PD-1, pdl one staining on it. They're going to send it off to garden. They're going to send it off to, to, to um, foundation and all these different you know, genetic testing companies in addition to whatever genetic testing companies are at your institution itself, which in many... You know, at a big academic institution like ours, we have a solid tumor panel that we run on all of these lung cancers, which is 48, a set of 48 genes that have been able to predict, you know, which drugs you're going to respond to. So a lot of what they want from you is tissue. Now, you're going to be able to give them more tissue with a transthoracic than the interventional pulmonologist would give with their biopsies, because they also tend to be pretty conservative with using small, small, uh, uh, small biopsy uh, uh, needles. And, you know, and, and I use, uh, uh, you know, I use a biopint, um 18-gauge core, and I take six or seven of those things out. So they get a lot of tissue. And I actually take a photograph. I, put, I lay them out in a telf in a line, and Michael can tell you, you know, I take a photograph of it on my iPhone, and I send that to the pathologist and to the referring physician so they know that there was plenty of tissue, and therefore there should, they can never send back that note that we all hate, which says, insufficient tissue for, for, uh, for doing the That's additional studies. That's a great studies. idea. And so I do that for every single patient. And so it forces the hand of pathologist to not be lazy and to sit there and go through all the slides and find which areas are PD-1, PD-L1 positive, et cetera. So, uh, and it also, it also reinforces for the referring clinician, wow, this guy gets a lot of tissue, and this is, this is what I want to be able to do all of the kind of molecular characterization of the tumors that I want. 
So what, so what role do I see us playing? I, I see us really as, as the Knights. We can move left. We can move right. We can move in all these different ways. We can ablate. We can cryoblate. We can microwave. We can even, in some cases, I don't really want to get into it because it's more experimental, but we can even go in there and embolize and doing all this stuff. And so sometimes it's as easy as this. They say, can you go biopsy this recurrent? Very, very commonly. Let me t- tell you this, first of all. In almost every single case of lung cancer, regardless of how good the therapy is that the medical oncologist is offering or the radiation oncologist is offering, there's going to be recurrence. Um, Whether that be 70% or 100%, whatever you believe in terms of the numbers, almost Mm -hmm. everybody's going to get recurrent cancer or a new lung cancer popping up at a later time. So what that means is there's always going to be a time for you. It may not be today. It may not be tomorrow. It may be six months from now. But if you already are involved in that patient's care, you went in there and you got a biopsy. And every time I go in there and I get a biopsy, I say, you know, while I'm in there, you know, it'd be even less dangerous if let me just go ahead and ablate this lesion while I'm there. Now, every once in a while, they say, you know what, that's the last place of disease. Go ahead. You can freeze it. You can, you can cook it. Um, sometimes they say, no, that's my index lesion. I want to use that for this chemo because they've got multiple other lesions going on, and they don't want you to. And then in that case, you just say, okay, you know. Um, and if it's a radiation oncologist sending it to you, usually the answer is no. You can't treat it. They don't want you to treat it because they want to treat it themselves. <laughs> yeah. and, that's, and that's fine, too. But sometimes what happens is this. You go and you biopsy for them. The radiation oncologist gets their answer, and they, they do chemo and radiation. So they, they, they let the you know, medical oncologist give them chemo and concurrently with the radiation that they're giving. And then the person has terrible pulmonary toxicity from the radiation, which is actually more common than you would think. And then they say, okay, buddy, you know, go ahead. You said you can ablate this thing, go ahead. And you ablate it, and, you know, you, and there you go. You got a case, right? So, um, so, you know, it took, I think it took much, much longer, honestly, to get radiation oncologists who would send me patients than to get medical oncologists or surgical oncologists or even the interventional pulmonologists. All those folks sent me patients long before the radiation oncologist finally broke down and did. Um, and that became because... Really, uh, you know, after after doing a lot of stuff for them and putting a lot of chest tubes and doing a lot of favors for the radiation oncologists, eventually they had a few patients where they admitted that you know they didn't have a lot to offer, but they but maybe I did. So the other sure. thing to keep in sure. mind from that perspective is that the radiation oncologists have very large, randomized, controlled clinical trials with hundreds and in some cases thousands of patients that have demonstrated the efficacy of their approach. So what does it mean? It doesn't mean that, you know, very often what they're doing is not curing the disease. They're slowing down the growth or they're doing whatever. At the same time as interventional radiologists, we are a tiny community by comparison, and we have not run those size trials. And so you have to understand that you're not going to be first-line agent if you didn't run those kind of trials. You're going to be second-line agent. But you're, if you have a disease population that is a quarter of a million people new being diagnosed every year, uh, and you're a second-line agent, man, that's pretty good. That's how you got to think about it. Even if I'm not the, the first-line therapy, if I'm second-line therapy in a disease process that a quarter of a million people are being diagnosed with every year, that's pretty good. By, per- no, by, no, comparison, only, by comparison, only 18,000 people die of liver cancer every year. So just to wow. put those numbers in perspective, you know, and that's all, no, I mean, every, I all like, every IR is chasing the liver cancer population. But yeah, I mean, to echo, to echo so kind of what, what you're saying, Stephen, I mean, I feel like there, there's definitely a need for it. And, and certainly the, the tumor board, um, you know, provide a mechanism for which, you know, we can offer services and participate in treatment, 
you know, whether or treatment and or diagnosis. Um, I, I know that maybe, you know, the, the tumor boards that I attend and, and maybe some places around the country maybe aren't as reflective or robust maybe as what you guys have at 10. I mean, like, for instance, you know, our tumor board more consists of MedOnc, uh, RadOnc, and then any surgeons. It, it's fairly infrequent that they actually show up to participate. And certainly in my institution, there's not a dedicated surgeon guy that, you know, is dedicated to intrathoracic malignancies. Um, but um, certainly I think it's, it's an opportunity for the interventional radiologist to play and, you know, offer services, whether it be biopsies or ablations. Um, but but sw- switching gears a little bit, Stephen, like when it comes to like patient selection, kind of what I was getting at earlier, like what what do you think like um, would be like your ideal case, like an, like a great case that you'd be like, wow, this is a fantastic referring this cancer is just one that I feel like I have like all my options open to me and I think I can maximize like a good treatment result. Sure. Well, I mean, that's going to be exactly what you would expect, which is a tumor that is not close to the pleura. So you're unlikely to develop a fistula when treating it. It's, you know, not, uh, not very close to a large bronchus or, or blood vessel. Um, and it is a solitary site of recurrence or a solitary site of disease. Because you're going to be able to stick that thing, and you're going to be able to to treat it, and it's going to go away, and it's going to regress to a little scar, and you know, and everybody's going to say you saved this patient's life, you know. So that's kind of the ideal case: is a centrally placed tumor, centrally being by that I don't mean close to the hilum or, or anything, but right, I mean right. you know, surrounded by a lot of lung parenchyma, not too close to a major airway uh, or blood vessel. Um, uh, but, and, also not and, too close, but also not close, too close to the pleura, yeah. But not too close to the pleura, yeah. right. So I, I originally was doing a lot more microwave. I, I still do do microwave. If you have a large tumor, microwave is going to require fewer probes in order to treat it. So if you have something that's larger than three centimeters, for example, microwave is going to require, because you can get a fairly large ablation zone with microwave, um, there's two advantages of microwave. Number one, it's faster than cryo because cryo takes, you know, your standard, you know, 10, 8, 10. That's about 30 mm-hmm. minutes, right? Versus microwaves, five minutes or 10 minutes, depending upon, you know, the, uh, the pro parameters that you set in terms of the ablation. Um, so so, uh, so that, that's one consideration. And every time you enter the pleura, uh, that's a risk of a pneumothorax and that's a risk of a bronchopleural fistula. So, you definitely are trying to minimize the number of times you're crossing the pleura. Now, if I have, personally, if I have a tumor that's right up against an airway, right up against the heart, for example, or right up against the pulmonary mm-hmm. artery, then I tend to use cryo just because um, I think that it causes less chance of uh, sort of a catastrophic complication. However, I can tell you that in, in talking with, with uh, uh, Damien Dupuy, for example, yeah. You know, he, he feels very comfortable using microwave right up against major blood vessels, including the aorta and pulmonary artery. And, um, and you know, he has had uh, pseudoaneurysms form because of that. One of my favorite cases uh, from Fellowship, actually, was uh, one that we actually treated with microwave, I believe, where you purposely, purposely created a pneumothorax to get it off of the aorta. Now, is right. that going to change your approach for microwave versus cryo? No, I think that that's that the intentional pneumothorax is is definitely one of our strong suits that other people just don't have. Is that we can, when we stick a trocar in there, <clears throat> we biopsy the tumor and then we go ahead and pull the trocar back and and uh, and either open it to the air or or pump some air in there and deflate it, and then that pulls it, you know, and then that tends to 
you know, allow it to relax off of the aorta. And then you can either, either you do that before or after, and then you stick it and you kind of pull it away from the aorta once you fro you know, you can stick it with either a microwave and use the freeze function if you're using a new wave. That is one, one thing I'll say, you know, not to, not to get into branding here, but, you know, new wave, the new wave <laughs> microwave probe has the ability to, uh, the stick freeze function, which I find very, very useful for pulling a tumor and its associated tissues away from a critical structure, whether it be in the abdomen, pulling it away from bowel or pulling it away from stomach or pulling it away from the pancreas, all of those things, you can stick it, freeze, pull the thing off, and then go ahead and do your microwave. Um, the same goes so, for cryo. You can stick and freeze and then pull it off and then actually do your freeze cycles. So, so Stephen, um, to, to, to go back to, to lung a little bit, so what percentage of your, of your practice do you think um, that you're using cryo and, and which percentage that you're using microwave? And, and if you want, this would be an opportunity. Like, I don't know if you have any experience with RFA or you've just always been microwave. Um, but kind of tell me a little bit about that. Sure. So if a tumor is greater than three centimeters, um, unless, it's, unless it's right on the pleura, um, mm -hmm. you know, involving the chest wall, then I generally will use um, microwave. And in general, if it's less than that, um, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preferentially go with cryo unless it's, unless it's the ideal tumor that we talked about earlier that's kind of centrally located away from all, all dangerous structures. And, uh, and I know that I can, and, and for example, I know that I can get it with, you know, one or two microwave probes and it's going to take a lot more for the cryo. So um, from a cost perspective, if you're dealing with outpatient, you know, doing this, as an out, doing this in an outpatient center, which I know people do do, um, then obviously you're talking about how do you reduce the number of probes you're using because every one of those probes is costing you money. Now, if you're doing it in the hospital, that doesn't that concern doesn't matter because the hospital bills separately for the consumables um, like that, and so um, and so that's that's kind of less of an issue. But um, but eliminating cost as a, as a consideration and really just going with you know safety, I think the, sure. the fewer times you can cross the fewer times you can cross the pleura, that's one of the rules, right? And so yeah. you're going to have less chance of getting in with thorax. And so if you go with cryo and you have to cross multiple times because you're not willing to throw a microwave probe in there. Um, because you're too close to critical structure, you just recognize you're going to accept a higher pneumothorax rate because you're crossing the pleura more than more times than you would with the microwave. Um, in addition, you know that you're going to consume more time for the procedure because of the fact that it's a, it's a you know 30 minute at minimum uh, therapy. The other thing I'd say is that all these nomograms people talk about with X amount of minutes and 10 minutes, eight minutes, 10 minutes, etc. I much more. I, I usually will do the first. The first round, I'll go ahead and stick to whatever that nomogram is. But the second freeze, I'll let it keep going until I can see my ice ball is expanded uh, well past the the region of the tumor, so that I know I have a good, um, you know, a good bit of safety in terms of covering the entire lesion. So, um, so you know, I think Michael can talk about this with adrenals. You know, I've treated 12 centimeter, 15 centimeter adrenal mets, um, and they took, you know eight probes or whatever it was. And, and what's nice about the, the Galil system that I use is, you know, I can put 20 probes uh, and it's all on one system. You know what I mean? Like literally okay. 20 probes, you know, I can fit on there and, I, and you can plug in. Um, I think you can actually do, you can do 10 and then you can do, you have two channels for each. So you can, might even be able to do more than 20, but I've never had to do that many, but the, but I have done up to eight and uh and with that, I just I can turn on or turn off different ones. Like I say, okay, this looks like this whole region now is covered, but this this side is still freezing, and that one needs to go a little longer. So I'll shut off channels one and three and seven, 
and leave two, four, five, you know, that kind of like that. And so um, I'll leave those going, and I'll leave them all the way up to 20 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever it is on that second freeze to make sure that the entire yeah. lesion gets covered. And so uh, a, lot no, of people, a lot of people feel that, like, they're stuck to the manufacturer's, uh, you know, settings, and that's simply not true. You know, I use time as an advantage and turn off the probes as I need to to cover the tumor. I mean, do you see everybody in clinic? I, wanna, I would like to hear what you do from, you know, <laughs> pre-treatment all the way through post, uh, you know, including sedation slash anesthesia, imaging, everything. Would you mind doing that for us? Sure. So when they, when they show up, I basically say, you know, these are, the, these are the ways you can treat this. You can say, I'm going to ignore this and, you know, I'm going to go home and have a six-pack and, 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 and totally ignore it. That's totally reasonable, you know. You can say, um, but, of course, the cancer is going to get bigger and it may kill you. Um, you can say I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the you know I'm gonna go to the uh, to the uh, you know to the Catholic Church and, and the radiation oncologist and they're gonna radiate it, uh, or I'm gonna go with the with the you know Queen and she's gonna poison it, or you're gonna come to me and they, and they ask me what do you do, and I'll be honest, it, Michael knows what I say in clinic. I say I I don't know if I'm gonna save your life, but I will fuck your cancer. And the nice. patients all, you know, at first they, their eyebrows go up a little bit, and then they, sure. they like that idea. <laughs> they like that idea. And I think you're in the South, and so you're going to get away with that a lot more than I get away with it here in the North. But, the, but I do get away with it because patients, that's what they want to <laughs> yeah, hear. Yeah, you just have to say they have an South, emotional you have to say bless your heart a lot. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to fuck your cancer, bless your heart. So, so the, the, the point <laughs> is, is that, you know, you, you then say, so the ways in which I have to treat this cancer is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick a needle into it. And you're going to say, now, the reason why, there's a couple reasons why your doctor sent you here today. One of them is, is that he, they want to get a piece of that tissue and see if you're eligible for any of the newer therapies. Because, you know, at my place, it's all about clinical trials, right? So you say, while we're in there getting, getting access to that piece of tissue, they would like me to stick a needle in there and go ahead and freeze it uh, or microwave it. Um, and the reason why I'm choosing to do one or the other with you today is because it's close to the pleura, and therefore I think that, you know, it's going to be fairly painful if I did the microwave, and I think it would just be better. Or you're saying, you know, you're giving them the reasons why you're choosing between microwave and cryo. And so I say, or, you know, I'm choosing microwave because it's going to take fewer probes, and uh, you have a centrally located tumor that I think is safe, and it's far away from critical, far enough away from critical structures that I think that this is uh, a good way to go. So I explain my reasoning to them now. I also will go ahead in the room we have, in our clinic rooms, we have the computers, and so I'll go ahead and pull up their tumor and show them pictures so they can envision it. And I say, you know, you're going to be laying in the CT scanner. We're going to give you some sedation. And if you get cryoablation, you know, we may be giving you just, just, just some uh, Versed and fentanyl, and you'll be in that kind of twilight sleep you, like you are with a, with, a, with a colonoscopy. Or if I'm doing microwave, I, I nearly universally uh, go ahead and have them get propofol sedation with an anesthesiologist. Interesting. Um, and that's just because it's it's just a lot more painful. Um, what kind of breathing so, support? Uh, t- well, with propofol, they don't need they don't need to be uh, they they usually get an LMA. LMA. They do an LMA. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Generally, they do an LMA. Um, the other thing to consider is if if it's someone you know I I also have folks with metastatic cancer, so I say if it's if it's multifocal disease, I say look it, I can only treat you know reasonably with the amount of time it takes to get these probes in and stuff. I can only treat five spots this first time. And I'll go back and I'll treat the next five spots next time, and I'll treat the next five spots next time. Now I will tell you that that's my own personal Y five. You know, that's just because I, I with keeping yeah. it down to a couple hour procedure, that's what I can accomplish. Michael sure. Solon, I've seen him do. I've seen him do fifteen spots at once. Okay, so it, I think that that's a matter of 
how fast you are with, you know, with getting probes in and, you know, and considering the amount of time you want someone to be under anesthesia and the amount of time you want to chew up in a day with a procedure, because remember, you're going to get right. one bill, you're going to get one billing from that procedure, whether you ablate 15 or you ablate one. So with regards to your, your pre-procedural management, it's fairly standard for like SIR invasive yeah. procedures, like with yep. the anticoagulation, NPO the night before. And then is there anything in, in particular that you do um, pre or peri-op other than just, you know, your standard either MAC or, or moderate sedation? Uh, no. So what I would say is, okay. you know, again, again, the idea of using a trocar, what that allows you to do is very quickly put a chest tube in. And most, most of the time, um, in fact, only one out of about, in my case, one out of about 20 patients, does the patient need a chest tube and stay overnight? So more than that, I'd say about 10% of the time, a patient will get a chest tube temporarily while they're on the table. I will suck out the pneumothorax and then pull the chest tube. Um, what I do is I, I, I go ahead and put a, you know, go ahead and put a, a you know, a 10 French tube in, uh, in the same spot I had the trocar in, suck it out, uh, cap it and let it sit for five minutes and scan them again. And if th- their lung didn't change in the setting of the, the tube being there for five minutes, then I just go ahead and pull the tube, scan them again. You know what I mean? And that sure. way they can, and that way they can, uh, just, you know, go home and not be dealing with a with a chest tube overnight. And if you and then if you have a, a successful ablation, like you you know you're comfortable with your margins, no, you know, in this situation, no no unexpected uh, bleed or or pneumothorax. Like what's your what's your standard uh, post op care uh, in sure. your in your recovery setting? So I, I usually withhold the anticoagulation, and by that I mean like serious anticoagulation, like Coumadin or uh, you know therapeutic heparin. I usually withhold that for 48 hours afterwards. I tell the patient not to fly for 48 hours because the spontaneous pneumothorax after lung biopsy or lung ablation, uh, when you take an airplane, tends to tends to actually be pretty high. You'd be surprised. So, for example, one of my first patients, I'll tell you, was uh, the wife of a, of a southern uh, uh, billionaire, and they flew up there on their on their Gulf Stream, and they parked it at the airport, and they were paying $1,500 an hour, and he, he was complaining about it to me. Um, and then when I told him that he had to wait, uh, 48 hours before they flew back down, um, he had his, his, uh, concierge go ahead and fly the plane back down and they, they, uh, they actually, uh, got some kind of motor coach and, and had him bring him back. So, um, because I, I kind of, I don't like, um, uh, just my, my own reading about it. Uh, there's more than one report out there of folks who even just had a lung biopsy and then flew the next day without a pneumothorax and they flew the next day and got a pneumothorax in the air and, and, and we're quite symptomatic and, you know, and it's kind of catastrophic, obviously, when you're, you know, 32,000 feet up and, and, and all of a sudden you can't breathe and there's nobody there to place an emergent chest tube. Uh, aside from flying, um, for like the actual day of the procedure, do you, do you keep them a couple hours and follow up chest so I generally Right. So, so what I do is um, after we do the procedure, uh, sedation at our institution is minimum two hours wait anyway. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to get a two-hour chest X-ray. If that two-hour chest X-ray looks good and the person is feeling fine, then I let them go. Now, uh, there's always the people who they just feel nauseous from the sedation and things like that, and I'll keep them a little longer. So, um, so after, so after the biopsy, like, and in, in, you know, your your periop uh, time goes great. They go home. Um, what, what do you? Uh, what's your follow-up? Uh, imaging stand, uh, imaging wise and also uh, clinically for you know, say your your patient with um, maybe one of your typical patients with uh, um, you know lung primary. 
Sure. So uh, the lung, <clears throat> you know, basically I'll treat every, you know, let's just say if it was someone with multifocal cancer and I needed to treat multiple times, I'll bring them back about every three weeks for the second, you know, round of treatment. Um, and I'll go ahead and schedule at the time of that round, I'll schedule them for the next procedure. Um, now, if they're only going to need to be, if they're a one and done or, you know, after their final thing, basically I follow up in a month with a chest CT. And I'm leaving off here, you know, I told you that a good 70% of my lung business is now adrenals and livers and things not related to the lung itself, just where lung cancer goes. Sure. But just talking about the lung itself, what I do is I get a chest CT. Um, if the patient has good renal function, I'll go ahead and get that chest CT with contrast because it also allows me to monitor if they're getting any nodal disease development and stuff like that that you can't see with a non-con, right? So, um, so I will go ahead and get a chest CT in a month. If things look pretty good there, then I'll, I'll space it out to three months. And if on the three-month scan, so now four months after the procedure, that looks good, I'll space it out to six months. Um, and then, you know, if, you know, if they get the six, if the six month scan, which is now of course, uh, 10 months later, whatever. You're, yeah. You're 10 out. Then, then I'll, then I'll, then I'll go ahead and, and space them out to a year. And then it's kind of a, you know, and then it's really a matter of the, of what is their underlying risk? Because what you find with the, with the, uh, uh, with the lung cancer screening trial is that these folks who are high risk, the recommendation actually is for an annual low dose chest CT. So for someone who's, who's thinking about starting out, uh, like, in, in getting into the lung space or the, the ablation, um, uh, you know, lung ablation, um, what, what would you think would be a good piece of advice of someone, like, starting to, who's very comfortable with, with, you know, biopsies of the lung or different maybe ablations, uh, like liver-directed therapies, like your regular IR doc, what would be some good advice for them to help get, uh, either get involved or start gathering patients and then treating these patients um, for ablation? I think the first thing is to start going to the lung tumor boards um, and really listening and not even necessarily offering your services of ablation, but start off with saying, you know, hey, are you having trouble getting access for a chest tube at, you know, Friday at four in the afternoon kind of thing, you know, where they, they you know, have a patient who came in and 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 uh, they got a biopsy from, let's say, your thoracic colleagues or whatever, or they just came in with a spontaneous pneumothorax or they came in with an effusion and they need a chest tube to get the effusion off. Whatever it is, you start offering the other services, which are the more run-of-the-mill standard services you do as an IR, but you make their life a lot easier. Um, you also start offering to, you know, if you need a little more tissue with that, I can do cores for you. You start offering, you know, cores and things like that. So I think you start. That's the way you you start building your practice, and also just being there. You'd be surprised. You'll say you'll see all the time. I was just frankly surprised that when I showed up to the tumor board, that you know they said, well, this guy he's only got it left in the liver, but I guess there's nothing we can do about that. And I was like, uh, wait a second, I can tell you something <laughs> I can do about that. So remember that these guys have never heard of chemoembolization. They've never heard of radioembolization. These are not hepatologists. These are not surgical oncologists of the liver. These are folks who deal with the lung, and so. They don't know that IRs are out there and able to treat the liver specifically. They don't know that IRs are out there and can treat the adrenal specifically, or even the kidney specifically. You know, there's there's actually there's so much lung cancer that even though lung cancer metastatic to the kidney is rare, uh, it, it's it's only rare in the sense that most lung cancer patients don't get it. It isn't rare in the sense that it happens thousands of times a year <laughs> because there's so much lung cancer. They're used to they're used to dealing with rooks. They don't know that we're a bunch of knights. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And so I think that that's the way well, to you know you go in there and you you listen, 
you offer them your basic services, and you also say, listen, and the other thing to do is I would say is assemble the relevant literature. Know about, uh, you know, know about the um, various clinical trials that have been done in the space. Know about Sharon Kwan's paper on, you know, our outcomes with early-stage lung cancer versus surgical outcomes. She went through the SEER database, and she looked at all, basically all the, all the surgeries and all the, all the lung uh, and all the lung ablations and demonstrated that if you match for tumor size and patient demographics, we have the same outcomes as surgeons. Um, and, uh, and we have a significantly less cost involved as well as the, uh, the, the amount of time folks stay in the hospital for the procedure. So, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'd uh, feel free to, to share my PowerPoint, uh, you know, kind of what these kind of talks I give for these things with y'all, I uh, put it in PDF format and just, you know, obviously ask your listeners not to, to, uh, you know, distribute necessarily, but, you know, they, they're welcome to, to look at it and, you know, and then I think just just be up to up on the literature in terms of what we can offer and what we do know about our therapies, and then keep an eye out for the new studies coming out, the randomized trials that we are doing in the space uh, here at the academic places, and um, and uh, and the and the main thing I'd say is you know you're an interventional radiologist. If you've got a complication, you're going to know how to deal with it. You're going to be the one that right. can go in there and embolize. You're going to be the one that can go in there and put a chest tube in. So. Don't have such trepidation. I'm not saying, you know, obviously uh, fools rush in where angels fear to tread, but you got to, you know, you got to also recognize that these are folks that, for the most part, they're, they have a dismal survival rate. And so you're going to be offering them hope where there was none. That's awesome. Um, All right. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think that would actually be really useful. We can make, if you wouldn't mind, just send us that, that PDF and we can make that available to our listeners if they need it. Uh, and, you know, I think we probably covered everything. Steve, uh, Chris, is there anything else you'd like to discuss? No, no burning questions here. Good talk, well, Stephen. I'd like to take a moment and thank both of you for an incredible podcast, both of our nights, Sir Hunt and uh, Sir Beck. Uh, this has been, you know, it's been a great hour, and I'd just like to thank everybody for tuning in to, to Backtable. Uh, look for us on Twitter. Let us know what you want to hear, any other discussions for our future podcast. Uh, you know, you can reach their Twitter handle, which is, at underscore back table, or just email me and we can make that happen. Thank you, everyone. And uh, yeah, if you want that PDF, uh, just email us, let us know, and we can make that happen. Steven, Chris, thank you. All right, thanks, Thanks Michael, for having me. Take care. All right, man.